This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, how you doing? Welcome to a brand new episode of Into the Wild. It seems like a long time since I've spoken to you all, partly because I've been off last week. I, I took a week off work, which I never do. I know it took a month off the podcast, but I was still working in my other jobs. Um, but last week I took a complete full week off doing absolutely diddly squat. Um, so it feels like ages since I last spoke to you. The reason for my uh, week off was mainly down to my brother getting married. Lee Dalton got married. He'll, again, once again, he'll, he loves a shout out. Whenever I give him a shout out on the show, <laughs> I get a WhatsApp going, Oh, oh go, go, shout out into the world. <laughs> um, he got married to his incredible now wife. And so myself and Christina went to go and celebrate and we thought we'd take the week off as well. Uh, it was a fantastic week. It really was. It was lovely. Beautiful wedding. Oh, the wedding was beautiful. It really was. I was best man of, so I was running around. It was really hard because it was on like this lovely estate where they have like a farm and there's wildlife everywhere. But I had to stay at the wedding, but I really wanted to run away for a walk. But there's only so much nature exploring you can do in a three-piece suit. So I had to be a bit careful. <laughs> so that's what I've been up to in the last week. And then myself and Christina decided to spend the rest of the week on the narrow boat and enjoy that we're in Hartford at the moment it's absolutely gorgeous right opposite some beautiful allotments on the canal taking life slow fire whiskey and reading the book it is as I'm sure you will agree absolutely idyllic but because of that because I've been caught up with things and some personal life stuff this week there is no 60 second nature news I nearly went for it I nearly thought I'd spend the week you know occasionally just looking up a nature story and trying to find something positive but at the same time there was this there was a tiny, tiny voice in the back of my hand going, don't do it! Um, just enjoy your week off. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's important to rest, isn't it? So that's what I decided to do. I decided to have a rest and chill out. So there's no 60 second nature news, but I will say this, as I record this on Saturday the 30th of October at 18.14, that this is coming out on Monday, which means COP26 would have already been a couple of days or one full day in. There's lots going on with COP26, there's lots of chats happening, there's loads of marches, there's loads of social media stuff going down with talking with different activists and interviews, you know, and it, it, God, it can feel like a lot. And it is a lot because it's important, it's, it's, it's the planet we're talking about. So I just want to say to you all, keep yourselves well, make sure you still go for your walks, go and see all the nature that you like to go and see and make yourself happy. For me personally, I'm really struggling to have hope and good thoughts about COP26. I think the targets are going to look incredible. I think the delivery of them is going to look questionable. But we can get through this. Well, we have to get through it. There's no alternative. So, so yeah, look after yourselves this week. It's going to be a big one. Watch some positive stuff as well as keeping up to date with COP26. And then probably what I'll do instead of Nature News the following week is I might do a, do a bit of a rundown of COP26 and see if there's something I can do with that. Anyway, let's move on to today's show. Oh, God, this week we've got a doozy for you. This <laughs> Going with the word doozy. Um, this week I speak with senior lecturer in biodiversity at Manchester Metropolitan University, Mr. Alex Lees, or Alexander Lees. I'm sure he prefers Alex Lees. I'm going to go with that. I wanted to get Alex on the show because I'm a super big fan of him on Twitter. He does some fantastic threads where he really breaks down a topic. Well, I say really breaks down a topic there. These are, you know, genuine research papers that he actually puts down into nice, easy to read threads on Twitter and you end up learning so much from them. And I've been a massive fan of them over the last 12 months. But then when I got him on the show, I was like, what do we talk about? <laughs> There's so much to talk about with Alex. He's done some extensive research, written some incredible papers. So I really was unsure what to go with. What we decided to do was go with nuances in nature. So we spoke about some of the threads that Alex has written, but we also spoke about the need for having nuance and having to understand the bigger picture, but all its sections in between and things, which I think is so on topic at the moment, especially as I write this 
at the moment there has been a lot of talk on Twitter about a big project happening in the highlands of Scotland with investors in rewilding and working with rural people. Uh, there's lots of nuances in that and you know on Into the Wild we love to talk about nuance. It's one of my favourite words and the reason why I like it so much is because if you don't have that then you're not getting to the heart of the topic. So it was lovely to talk to Alex about this. He says some incredible points um, and it was just an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. So enough of my blabbery mouth. Good to talk to you all again. But this I'm going to introduce you now is Nuances in Nature with Alex Lees. Alex, welcome to Into the Wild. I've got to say it's a pleasure to have you on the show. For a start, I feel like I've been following you on social media forever because I've read so much of your fantastic threads that you you put out there on wildlife but welcome to the show mate how are you well thanks for the invitation ryan i'm fine uh, long day long day in the office as it were or the home office but otherwise uh, surviving at this end nice one well good to hear are you still fully working from home so i'm the i'm a senior lecturer at manchester met Uni- university and so we're still with our and our teaching face to face but i've sort of subsequent subsequent the pandemic i've sort of got myself set up with an actual home office in my garden so oh nice I, i've only been go- i've only been going in when i've had to be on campus to teach rather than sort of historically i'd be in every day in my office there but but given we've got all the re- office office sort of usage restrictions and such like then it's sort of just as easy to work at home and i guess it also sort of comes back to that whole commuting thing right i sort of end up losing um you know often two hours of my day sort of going to and from yeah. work which i could actually be working and or, or going birding or doing something else so i think yeah that post-pandemic <laughs> response i guess as well i know i think there's many industries out there that have been shaken very hard it's going to be interesting to see how they evolve over the next few months and into the new year it's lovely to have you here so let's start with the obvious question alex do you want to tell us who you are and what is it you do so i'm a senior lecturer at manchester metropolitan university so that entails sort of one component of my life is teaching students uh, you know on various courses at sort of undergrad and postgrad level you sort of bi- conservation biology and evolutionary ecology and landscape ecology and that sort of thing uh, another part of my life is doing tedious horrendous uh, admin type tasks which uh, all academics hate immensely but we have to do those as part <laughs> of our remit and the other half part is the, the sort of research it's sort of a, it's almost like a third a third a third and my research interests are quite varied but um, I guess most people think of me as someone that sort of does tropical forest conservation work uh, but I also do write all the sorts of other bird papers, mm. conservation and, and taxonomy and systematics and that sort of fingers in, in various other pies in terms of sort of rewilding and, and various other sort of bespoke questions with some of them sort of big sort of macrological, you know, pattern and process of where birds are in space and time and, and very long been interested in vagrancy as well and a book coming out uh, later in the autumn about that. But that's sort of almost like a hobby interest, I guess, in, in a sense. It's sort of what, what got me into being interested in, in birds, I guess, underpins that. There's, I was going to say, Joel, I don't know if this, this may be oversimplifying a lot, but f- from following you on social media and, and seeing topics you write brilliantly write threads on and stuff, it seems like you're someone that really enjoys to kind of challenge the status quo and ask questions and dive in. Would you agree with that? Maybe, I guess, to an extent. I Well, as an academic, I don't... I mean, you can... It, you know, sort of accuse academics of sort of sitting on the fence or whatever, but I mm. see the world as being quite complicated and and often doesn't sit well. The sort of the, the the way we often group ourselves and position ourselves, especially on on the internet, which happens much less so in the real world as well. Uh, yeah. I think the internet you see a lot more sort of silo thinking, if you like, and uh, I like to sort of. To, to, to speak to people that might sort of challenge what I believe because of it I think if you understand where the people come from it's either easier either to to change how they think or maybe change how yeah. you think as well so I've always seen that as as being important and, and and research can take you in in directions which might challenge the things you, you like to do etc maybe we'll get onto that a bit later but yeah we're dr- driven by questions right and and by a sort of mm. what's driven my research impetus is how best to conserve biodiversity, which is sort of what what, what motivates me, right? All, all these questions are generally relate back to the biodiversity conservation at some level, even if that's sort of basic stuff like describing new species or establishing where you know species are in space and time to the sort of higher level priority setting exercises of what we have to do where and, and how we do these yeah. things, etc. Nice one. Well, next question. This is a bit of a, of a fluffy one. But what does wildlife and nature mean to you? So I've always been very, very interested in the natural world. I guess I got into mm. dinosaurs first. 
Yeah. From the, I think I could name all the, like, the epochs in time at the age of about five and <laughs> collected, collected my first specimen around that time as well, which Amazing. took to the National History Museum. I actually took some, some dry fears, some devil's toenails, if anyone knows, uh, sort of spent time like Jurassic shale or whatever. And then something else, which I was pretty sure was going to be like a dinosaur bone, but it turned out to be fossilised mud. So I think there were, <laughs> there, were, there were some tears about that. Uh, and then got into birds because, well, birds are dinosaurs and it's just kind of doing, mm. studying dinosaurs in, in the flesh and uh, interested in, in other groups as well. Sort of classic birder interest in, in, in stuff you can see in July and really identify in the field. So Odonata, butterflies and dragonflies and orchids and such like and, and yeah. obviously mammals. But yeah, I mean, birds has sort of been the overriding interest, I guess. That's really cool because, do you know what you just said there? I on the show, there's a running joke that I don't like birds. And that's not true. They were never an animal that took my interest, which we all have our you know areas of interest. But no one who's tried to convince me yet has said birds are basically dinosaurs. And that would have massively have grabbed my interest of anyone. Because <laughs> as you've said that, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Same as reptiles. <laughs> Yeah, it is awesome. And uh, I guess that, you know, we've sort of, I follow a lot of paleo artists on Twitter as well. And it, it's amazing to think, well, the, how dinosaurs are depicted now versus how they were depicted, you know, when I was a kid is it, so, so different based on what, what we now know. So, I mean, that, that linkage is, is much more obvious you know, you know, today. And the topic we're focusing on today, I'm, re- I'm really excited about this episode, Alex, because I mean... Again, it's something I'm a big fan of is nuance, I guess, which is really weird because I never really thought of that being an interest. But I guess from what I see in wildlife conservation and how it's either reported or discussed, sometimes that nuance looked or asking those questions can be lost quite a bit. And not only for the information, but for the kind of the thought on the topic as well. So my first question for you for that is why do you think nuance is lost often in wildlife conservation when we talk about it? So I don't think it's lost amongst practitioners by and large mm. i think it's lost on the internet uh, and i think it's lost sometimes amongst activist groups uh, and sometimes in the way that charities portray their causes i think sometimes as well yeah and i think that's simply because we sort of arrived at this point uh, of of a very sort of polar differences between different camps which think they're doing the best thing by the natural world and i think yeah. that's quite problematic in itself because we sort of You've got one side. I mean, the, the most obvious fraction is perhaps between the sort of country sports people and, and everyone else, perhaps, isn't it? And we <laughs> yeah. the whole of the internet is populated by this sort of us versus them. When, you know, even the country sports people are completely fractitious amongst them. Uh, don't, they don't like being labelled as, as one group because they all think different things. And quite mm. a lot of them I've seen when I can sit and, and listen to people, you know, have quite big problems with some of the things that happen. But, you know, they know they do do things which do help biodiversity. So it's, it's sort of understanding those trade-offs is, is quite important as well. I think it's it's very easy to sort of sit back and argue with with people who some of them are doing the right thing and are doing things yeah. genuinely in the field which are helping and they may also, you know, shoot some animals sometimes and, and possibly eat some of those things. And it's, it's just, there's much bigger fish to fry. And I think we get, we get sort of so easily stuck in this sort of identifiable victim syndrome of little problems nested in quite sort of complex sociocultural realities. And then the bigger mm. challenges sort of almost get lost. I think it's partly because of this sort of, I like to sort of refer to it as identifiable victim syndrome, right? It's because it's very easy to identify mm a dead animal versus it's much more difficult to understand the loss of an entire habitat or indeed in some parts of the world, entire biomes. And people, you know, it's it's not a currency we we can cope with. And the the, the term of the victim syndrome is often used in terms of disasters as well. We'll we'll focus on the the death of a single child when when thousands or tens of thousands have died, for instance. It's just how our brains comprehend reality that we can, we can often get stuck on what I think are often quite trivial things when we we ought perhaps with many of these people to be working together or if not working well certainly working together but often sort of trying to separate out these different groups because once they feel under pressure a lot of these groups close down and that sort of stops internal dissent as well so i think these conversations are important that's why i I like to sort of speak to lots of different people online because i do learn stuff and my my opinion does shift and i think you know as a scientist we have we we have to challenge ourselves and and take in new data and and understand what what we should be doing when and how and i do think this is a great problem with the internet because 
beyond that, I mean, NGOs of all sorts sort of work together and, and shooting NGOs are constantly part, you know, co-funding PhDs with, with classical environmental NGOs, for instance. And although there may at face value be Twitter accounts run by people within these groups, that, that seem to be at loggerheads, it, it belies much greater collaboration behind the scenes. And I think it's quite problematic when we, we mm. cast the light on these organisations as, as being at loggerheads, when there are some fundamental issues that need to be resolved. But equally, you know, been working together for a long time and, and most people interest the natural world, including some of those people that go out and shoot bits of it occasionally, are still motivated by conservation and they might have slightly different underpinning sort of the drivers that cause that but ultimately they're, they're more interested in the natural world than the vast majority of the British public who you know don't have expressed interest I mean they may say they're interested in and you know and say green causes are important but day to day you know they're not they're not immersed in nature they should be and we need to work out how to bring them into those spaces but ultimately they're not that enthused or, or don't have that that contact so I think it's almost you know, we should be working with these people towards common goals, and we can agree on quite a lot. And when we're fractitious, when we're divided, then as a political force, we're, we're much weaker. There's so much to agree on. That's a weird thing, because it's so easy to think, I disagree with what you're saying, so I disagree with every single point. Where, you know, I've had chats with people on this podcast, you know, with deer stalkers, with shooters, with hunters of different kinds, and whilst there's a lot, I'm like, oh, gross, I don't like that. But actually, like you said, <laughs> they spend way more time in the field than I do and they see a lot more of the real I guess the real nature world than I do as well especially what considering I live in in central London so it's it it's kind of an unlearning isn't it you've got to unlearn quite a lot and accept to be challenged and accept to be wrong I think that's the biggest thing that people are kind of scared of maybe sometimes I think so but what's important is just understanding frames and the way that mm. other people see the world because you can convince people just starting off in the immediate frame that is everything that you do is wrong that doesn't you don't go forward like that I mean you think about conversations with farmers and, and farming is far more important a problem to sort out than, than the field sports yeah. in, in this country I mean that's what underpins a lot of biodiversity loss and, and why have we got to this point is the question we want to ask right I mean farmers have done the things they've done they've removed habitat because of, of government incentives over the years you know we've we've told them to do this and that so that we could reduce food prices that we were trying to ensure food security and all these things they've done and they've been asked to them have they done these things and now we need to ask them to do different things and we need to be very sort of clever about the way we do that but just sort of turning around to farmers and then telling them that they're idiots and they've destroyed, yes. you know, British biodiversity is not, it's not conducive. Not to, is it? to, to, <laughs> no, it's not. And, and, and quite a lot of them haven't. And quite a lot of them do do good farming. And there's quite a lot of those people recognise the problems mm. with the other ones as well. But again, if you close this down and make it this sort of binary us versus them, well, farmers stick together. And w the way this moves forward is, is it's kind of peer to peer. I mean, I might have some leverage as a scientist, but I've got far less leverage than, than farmer A speaking to farmer B. Yeah. That's where leverage comes from, as well as the, the financial returns that can drive that change too, and in terms of uh, policy interventions like subsidies, etc. And that's where we need to be. But just starting off from the sort of that being right, farming's a disaster and it, it's wiped out biodiversity. That might be true to an extent. It might be the proximate driver, but how we've got to that, that's a, that's a shared problem that, that all of us you know, in this country have born witness to and it's not you know necessarily farmer a or farmer b's problem it's the choices we make in the supermarket and, and how they've incentivized you know you ended up with milk being cheaper than water or whatever and it's just these are just absurd things yeah. that have to change that's something that really gets to me though what you've just <laughs> because something that really kind of grinds my gears a little bit is when we talk about changes that we all need to make for whatever reason no matter how small and how we go forward and where we put our vote or where we put our money and stuff and then you know quite a lot of people will turn around and say well you know it's not up to me or my change won't matter and you know it's the big corporations or it's, or it's farmers that need to change and stuff it's that's such a I don't know taking yourself out as if you don't exist in society and going I you know it doesn't matter it's like but but you, it, it's your money, mate. It, you're putting your money somewhere, which is incentivizing something to happen. And that's the one bit that really gets to me and, and frustrates me a lot yes, with the world. Consu consumer pressure is incredibly important. Yeah. We've seen massive success in, in terms of 
trying to avoid what sort of ecologists call negative externalities, mm-hmm. you know, the, the environmental harm caused by oil palm or by beef in Amazonia or, or whatever it is. And and we need to revisit that. Well, how, you know, how can we support wildlife friendly farmers here? And it's quite often you're not supporting them by shopping at Sainsbury's or whatever it is, because they're looking to to, to reduce their costs. And, and, and we need to be thinking much more strategically then about, you know, where we invest and how we get our food from to, to be producing these sort of uh, wildlife friendly farming outcomes. And, uh, you know, we, again, we could talk all day about subsidies oh, gotcha. and, and, and these sort of issues, and it would be incredibly boring. But, but <laughs> this is where we need to be. And it, it becomes an issue of you know, making sure that the politicians take the line there because we don't want to again throw the the farmers under the under the red bus or whatever or whatever we're calling it these days. So, you know, these are really sort of important societal issues, and we have we have huge power as as well in voting for politicians and in voting for for food and, and purchases and or in supporting charities or whatever it else whatever it else it is or to a lesser extent yeah. signing petitions and that sort of thing but that's far less important than the other choices we make yeah i, I completely agree and um, i mean i guess my final point on that people is shop local shop independent it's probably the best <laughs> go visit a farmer's market for god's sake <laughs> you'd be surprised how cheap some of the stuff is um so what i thought i'd do is because there was so much you and i could have spoken about today so i thought the best thing to do is to take two topics that one you focused on recently in a thread based on a research paper you've published recently, and then one thing that you've worked quite a lot in, um, and kind of talk about the nuances and the different points within them. So we're going to start on, quite strangely, feeding birds in your garden, basically. And I was quite surprised to see this thread come up because it's such an activity that so many people do that is so easy to see as, that's grand, because I'm feeding wildlife. Um, But damn, that thread... And apologies, I've not read research paper yet, but I go into and I can't wait because it's so informative and so kind of there were so many points where I was like, I've never thought about that. I've never considered that. And I've never heard anyone say they've considered that. So let's talk about this. So you you recently did the thread on kind of the impacts, I guess, of uh, garden uh, bird feeding. What were the main points from that research paper and the thread that you felt were kind of the most important ones? Okay, so this was based on a paper in biological conservation that was led by um, a postdoctoral research associate, Jack Shutt, who's working with me on my lab. The backstory here that he's actually working with me doing uh, sort of modelling changes in species distributions and sort of evolutionary implications of change on, on Amazonian birds. Mm. But he, so he came to me as having uh, uh, finished a PhD uh, in, in Edinburgh and he was looking essentially in a roundabout way at the impacts of garden bird feeding. So he had this huge latitudinal transect in, in, in Scotland and was doing faecal metabarcoding of blue tit poo to work out what they were eating, basically. And sort of the long story short, what paper of his that came out showed that like blue tits across the whole of Scotland basically are fed. I mean, and, and it can be up to like three quarters of their entire diet can be could be peanuts and and even ones living in quite remote areas will travel kilometres to access bird feeders. And this is in, in sort of you know, central Scotland and where that's nominally quite remote compared to, you know, very heavily, heavily populated southern England, mm. for instance. So we were sort of chatting with him. We thought, right, there were a few other papers on this, but no one's really linking this evidence together. I mean, there's good evidence that, that bird feeding has changed the populations positively for some species. So a paper led by the BTO a few years ago shows that the, the species that come to feeders a lot of them have increased massively. I mean, things like great tits have increased by like 40% in, in 30 years. Jesus. So we've got, you know, coming up on a million extra great tits almost. And so there's, there's sort of some, some good news stories there. And then we've known that there was some bad news stories. The disease issue has been around a long time, right? Though the more you think about it, the more almost sort of disconcerting it is. Like, you know, we sort of, we reduced the population of greenfinches by like 60%. And, and no one actually said, well, let's stop feeding greenfinches or... And, you know, that's sort of millions and millions of dead greenfinches. And, you know, I was complicit in that, if you like. Yeah. You know, I only stopped feeding birds fairly recently and also getting goldfinches with trichomonosis, which is the which is the disease that affects mm. the, the greenfinches as well, for instance. And there's been major disease outbreaks elsewhere in, in Europe and in North America associated with garden bird feeding, etc. So we sort of known about this disease angle. But what we, the kind of novelty in the papers, we were discussing what are the impacts on other species, basically. Yeah. You know, if if the populations of, of, of some species have increased, well, you know, what happens to, to other things? And there are several species, uh, especially woodland birds in this country, which have sort of declined quite precipitously in the last 20 or 30 years. And there's been lots of work done on those 
They've done those birds in the field, mm. you know, intensively studied, and everyone's sort of come up with blanks, like, well, their habitat hasn't disappeared, and, you know, they're sort of finding enough food in these sort of problems, and then looked at their reproductive success and found a lot of them sort of struggling. And one of the, the, the sort of most uh, famous examples is, is Willetit, mm. which is a bird which declined like 94% in about 30 years or so. That's mad, isn't it? It is mad. Um, in that time, like the amount of habitat for Willetits actually increased, for instance. And we know why. Well, why do Willetits fail? Well, the leading cause of, of failure is because they, they lose the nests they construct. Mm. Uh, so they're actually a, a cavity nesting species which, which excavate their own cavities, right? Blue tits and great tits have to wait until a natural cavity forms, whereas uh, willetits okay. basically dig, dig their own cavities. The leading cause of a willetit failure is basically when blue tits, which are a competitively dominant species, usurp them from those nest cavities which they've sort of carefully built. And then the second leading cause of failure is predation by great spotted woodpeckers. Oh, wow. Uh, and both blue tits and great spotted woodpeckers and great tits and nuthatches and all these dominant species have increased massively, probably because you know, we're providing with huge amounts of food. And when I say huge amounts of food, I'm talking 150,000 tonnes of food in the UK and enough food to, to feed year-round the 10 commonest feeder-using birds several mm. times over. If we think about how we sort of... This sort of idea of trophic cascades is, is all over Twitter and we sort of think about rewilding and we, we, we sort of criticise releases of millions of pheasants in the, into the countryside, for instance, yeah. and... Because people people recognise the, the problems with changing the system. You pull on a lever, there's an ecological response to that. Well, if you pull on a lever which is providing huge amounts of resources, which are taken up by competitively dominant species, then it's likely that subordinate species will be affected by that. And what's really important to understand here is, is how dominant and subordinate species, so by subordinate, I mean sort of weaker or the, competitively yeah. less, the less competitive species, if you like, how they interact in the environment. How do they? How do the subordinate species create their own niche to survive? Well, they do that by having specialist behaviours. So we mentioned one already for the willetit, which is digging their own nests. And that means they can occupy areas of, of quite new sort of um, secondary woodland, if you like. So brownfield sites and these sort of areas where the land has been abandoned, the woodlands come up. And in those sites, it takes a quite a long time for natural cavities to form that blue and great tits can colonise. So willetits are like an early successional species and they can occupy those habitats. Willetits also cache food. So they, they hoard food like coltits do. Mm. If you see coltits in your bird feeders, they'll come in, take food and bury it, basically. Okay. And marsh tits do that as well. All, all for three of those sort of smaller species cache food, whereas blue and great tits do not do that. So that means that they can store food for a rainy day or a cold winter or whatever it is. Marsh tit, which is another species which is also declining catastrophically, again, completely different habitat requirements to willet it. It's a, it's a late successional species. It, it likes mature woodlands, which it's also got lots of. So diametrically kind of opposite in many ways to, to willet it in that way ecologically, but also subordinate species also in competition with these other, the dominant species. And marsh tit, we know they're their fastest to find resources. So in studies using bird feeders in woodlands, you can move the feeder around to different places. It's always the marsh tits that find it first. Okay. So in the natural environment as well, they would be quick to find those resources. But now you think, well, what is, how does bird feeding and how does provisioning nest boxes change this, right? So if you're putting nest boxes up in areas where you've only got early successional woodland, then you're sort of you're opening the door to blue and great tits, which can then also then rob the nests of uh, marsh and willetits. By in cold winters, you'd expect there to be big mortality of the, of the common things like blue and great tits, right? Whereas marsh and willetits might survive by by hoarding food, yeah, and or you know just spontaneous resources as they would normally occur in the environment. Marsh marsh tits get there first. You know they can take advantage of that until they get displaced. But bird feeding it, it undercuts all of these special ecological traits basically. And by just this weight of numbers of these, these dominant competitive species, there's a fairly clear pathway that it might be ecological interactions which are driving these declines. Those That's the most clear examples, but there's others as well. Like lesser spotted woodpecker is in direct competition with great spotted woodpecker again. Mm. No evidence that there's been huge changes in habitat of these species. We're acquiring more woodland cover in this country, yet we're losing all these subordinate species and we're just sort of homogenising our woodland avifaunas. 
you know, in quite sort of spectacular way. And again, in the same way that we can't possibly not be impacts of, of releasing 50 million game birds, they can't possibly be not impacts by, by you know, releasing 150,000 tonnes of bird food into, into the community. And, you know, I've worked for a long time on these sort of interactions between species and, and how they shape communities. I mean, doing this in the Amazon basin where you see competitive interactions between species basically mediate which species go extinct in fragmented landscapes. So I've been writing papers on this for a long time. I'm writing papers on the pheasants and, and, and trophic cascade stuff sort of 10, 12 years ago. And the paper seems to be fairly well received. I think people find it quite intuitive that there must be impacts here. But there is a huge amount of nuance because in, in middle of cities, it's probably quite likely that bird food is the only thing keeping some species in business. I mean, you know, we sort of get to these sort of hermetically sealed environments with 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 no resources in the middle of town yeah. cities, where maybe starlings and sparrows—that's the only reason they persist there. And so, in the paper, which is actually about a lot more than than just feeding garden birds, feeding garden birds is one example mm. of wildlife provisioning in general, and that extends in various different axes. Which it kind of it's worth just quickly explaining some of those here. Yeah. But the, the key definition we, we sort of try to talk about is whether or not feeding is targeted or whether it is, is generalised. So whether you're feeding a specific species for a specific reason or if you're just sort of lobbing food out to that community and whether or not feeding is a, a replacement resource for a species which has lost a resource or whether it's an additional resource. Mm. So, for instance, in a UK context, like farmers putting out bird food for linnets and yellowhammers in, in farmland to replace the loss of winter stubbles is a replacement resource, whereas feeding blue and great tits is an additional resource. Yeah. I mean, there is food for them. them thing. You give the additional this additional resource, population of those birds goes up. You know, species which are, were super common anyway get commoner, basically. So it's, it's kind of understanding how we partition our, along these lines. And what we don't know in the paper... And what actually needs some really good science is what how, what can we recommend to people in different places? You know, I, I, I'd be totally remiss to say, right, stop feeding birds. Yeah. Because, you know, it might just collapse house sparrows in cities. But equally, you know, I, I think there's there's pretty good evidence that we probably shouldn't be feeding birds anywhere near the last willetits, including on RSPB reserves and, and such like, because there's a very clear pathway that helping their competitors is the main reason why they're disappearing. And, and had it been a mammal or whatever else, well, the RSPB obviously trap these things and get rid of them. We're not saying we should be trapping blue and great tits, right? But we are saying, <laughs> well, we shouldn't be yeah. feeding them, mm. right? I mean, I think there is a difference there. And I think we have to appreciate that. We don't want to be helping their competitors. You know, we don't have to take them out, but equally, you know, like we would brown rats or, or red foxes on, on some reserves, etc. but equally shouldn't be encouraging them. Uh, and that's, I guess that's where we are at the moment because we've, you know, we're boosting the populations of, of a common and, and generalist species. And that's happening not just through bird feed, it's just happening through all these responses to anthropogenic change, right? We're, we're just creating this homogenised world where the, the, the specialists are losing and the generalists are winning. And we don't want to continue helping generalists, we want to help the specialists. Well, that's, yeah, because when you make up how, you know, how many gardens there are in the UK, for Christ's sake, and how much, you know, of a potential land space that is, or how much of a real land space that really is, and if so many people are doing this, really, you're increasing a habitat and, like you said, putting so much additional food for animals or, or nest boxes or whatever you're doing is for animals that don't overly struggle throughout the year anyway until they get to the winter where they do struggle and the specialists <laughs> have figured out ways to go on. I didn't mention migration as well, right? Mm. I mean, that's the other angle. We're talking about resident species, but all the migrant birds that come in, they're, they're sort of they're betting on, on cold winters some years, mm. right? So in in the summer, all these warblers and flycatchers, they're actually also competing for the same food, sometimes for the same um, nest cavities, etc., as a resident species. Now, migration is getting harder and harder and harder. You're getting desertification of the Sahara. It's getting more difficult to cross. You're losing staging grounds en route. You've got phenological uncoupling where... You know, we're getting crazy spring weather. It's getting super hot. Birds yeah. arrive early, then it's snowing. You know, we've got all these problems. And then, you know, they're betting that now and then there'll be a really cold winter and it'll wipe out all these blue and great tits and they'll arrive to a, a lovely empty wood that they can do really well in. But that's not happening. We're, we're helping all the generalists through the winter. And so it's the question of, you know, what is the game of conservation here to sort of stop natural selective processes? And maybe that's kind of what we're doing to an extent, especially if it's, 
natural selective process to species which are doing very well, if we're helping other species which are declining massively, you know, we need to do whatever we can. And, you know, sort of feeding some species like pink pigeons in in Mauritius was, you know, key conservation interventions, mm. saving species from extinction or putting up nest boxes for, you know, some tropical parakeet species where all the old growth <laughs> trees have been locked, for yeah. instance. But, you know, we, we need to be cleverer, I think, about how we interact with these commoner species because, you know, ultimately we're not actually doing conservation there and bird feeding is for us, right? It's it's a human wildlife uh, interaction and, and there are other human wildlife interactions which are more beneficial. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a bigger payback for, you know, creating habitat if you own a patch of land and not everyone does, which is also important, something to recognise, right? Because people, why people buy food? Because they think you're doing something well. You think you're doing something right, which sometimes you might be, sometimes you might not be. But ultimately, you need to, you're only helping 10 species of birds at best, right? Whereas if you can manipulate your habitat, then, you know, average suburban garden of even a quarter of a hectare or, or, or a lot less than that can still have over a thousand species in it. And if it's a plastic astroturf, then you've, you've got virtually nothing. Yeah. versus you know something with diverse habitat you can pack into something that's tiny and i think that that to me is ultimately the message if you can uh, and that probably aligns well with where we shouldn't or shouldn't be bird feeding because it's probably in these more rural areas more affluent areas where we shouldn't be feeding and people should be you know, sp- you know spending time doing gar- wildlife gardening the house we bought here you know the, the the owners had two or three feeders up and well i continued running feeders for several years afterwards but the whole garden was just like rhododendrons and and a load of ornamental plants with virtually no biodiversity value whatsoever. So, you know, all of that's gone. Uh, and we've got a load of native species in now. And that's that's a, that's a much better intervention yeah. than than buying several kilograms of, of Niger seed, which has come from West Africa and could have been rainforest before it was bird food. I mean, you know, let's think about these externalities. And again, if those choices, right, we make sort of ripple across the planet with what is land for and what we're growing where and why, et cetera. Because I was going to ask you, is, is this something we need to change? Is this something that people just need to be aware of these impacts or and kind of what would you advise? But I guess you've kind of done it there. Maybe it is kind of a location based thing because in the city, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time on the canal on my girlfriend's narrowboat. We see a lot of bird feeders. And to be honest, in central London, it's parakeets all over them all day, every day, all year round. So there's your species you're helping there in London. But I guess... Would you is that would that be your kind of main takeaway at the moment? Would to say we need to look at the location of where you are. If you have garden, if you're lucky enough to have garden or green space, what is the best thing you could be doing with that? Because also, like if you're planting native flowers, that's cheaper and easier. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of of advice, I think the most concrete thing, if you're anywhere near willow tits and or maybe marsh tits, you probably shouldn't be feeding. Everything else, it's going to have to be a PhD studentship or a postdoc or some big data crunching to work out where where might be good, where not might be good, etc. But but just wildlife gardening as a thing we need to be encouraging is just completely key. And you mentioned the parakeets, and I mean there wouldn't be parakeets if there if there wasn't for for bird provisioning like that is. And parakeets yeah. also compete with other species for for nest holes. So you know mm-hmm. we know there's sort of an emergent competition there when it's difficult to say how problematic that is at this point but there is there is evidence that there is a competition uh, element and an issue there and uh, and even just impacts on birds through what we're feeding them right i mean should long-tailed tits really be eating mostly like rendered beef fat or whatever and you know yeah is that really good for them i'm not 100 <laughs> sure if it was actually yeah. blue and great tits probably not i mean great tits eat like bat brains and and everything else but um what do they yeah <laughs> they go into bat hibernacular prey on bats they also even catch and kill small birds especially in scandinavia google um well you use youtube and you watch a video of them catching and killing red poles at a uh, in someone's garden so you know needs must i mean that when we talk about sort of helping dominant species i mean great tits are like properly dominant like a little rapacious predator Christ. So when they when they want to God. be and they routinely kill pied flycatchers in battles over nest boxes and they sort of have a fight in the box and then the kill the pie fly cage and just build the nest over the top of it. So, you know, the having 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 extra eight hundred thousand great tits is, is not something to to be sniffed at, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, Jesus, that's incredible. Alex, I think you've done something that many people have failed. You just got me interested in birds. <laughs> oh, I hope so, yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know any of that. I, I it's so interesting to talk about that. Because I mean the other thing is if I don't know if I'm looking at this too simply, but 
if you could just simply buy that kind of stuff at any garden centre or pet shop, I mean, you should be questioning why. Do you know what I mean? Something that's that easy to grab cannot be that... It, nothing's that simple of a solution. Like, oh, I can get it at any pet shop, put it in my garden, I've just helped wildlife. It's like, there are... It's going to be a bit deeper. Yeah. Well, it's become it's become a sort of a capitalist solution to, to connection yeah. with nature, right? And it's, it's grown mm. from you know, putting a little bit of bread out on a cold winter to feed year round 30 different types of bird food and all this provisioning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and has obviously been in, embraced by a lot of NGOs as well. So it, it does bear thinking about the consequences of that. And also sort of comparing us with other places in the world, in Australia and New Zealand, no one feeds the birds. It's actively discouraged and frowned upon for the same reasons that we see here, only they get it much worse because they've got, mm. for instance, in New Zealand, they've got like all our birds, which have been introduced there by sort of idiotic Brits, you know, a couple, a couple <laughs> hundred years ago, right? Bringing all these things in. Well, they do really well at bird feeders, but all the native yeah. species you know, sort of outcompete, etc. And and then Australia has like, again, there's all the superlatives around Australia, isn't it, all the time, right? But I mean, when they have like dominant species, well, they just have dominant species. They've got despotic species, like the noisy miner, which literally yeah. like, removes all other passerine birds in its territory like you know sort of groups of them could just get rid of everything so you know you're feeding birds there you end up feeding noisy miners and that just increases the noisy miners ability to to get rid of all the other sort of uh, the honey eater birds in in their territory so you know so people don't it's not it's not a done thing to, to feed feed wildlife provision wildlife down there at all so we're also it's uneven globally about what to do and well whether to do it or not and it's also very dependent on on, on the frequency, right? In North America, it's obviously very popular, but vast areas of North America are still, you know, very, very sparsely populated. And you just, in the yeah. UK, we're just very densely populated, huge amount of bird feeding. So there's nowhere that's not exposed to it. And that, that therein is the problem. If you were just occasionally mm. some people feeding food, it's it's not a problem. But but these common birds have always got access to this food, basically. There's no respite. So the next one, I'm, the next topic we're going to move on to is rewilding and reintroductions, I guess. And Jesus, has that been a topic in the last couple of years? Like that has been, I'd say probably that's kind of dominated the wildlife and, and quite rightly so in a lot of areas as well. Um, so in the last five years, it's been a massive topic. And this is something you kind of you've focused on a lot as well. Do you believe these two things are the way forward for wildlife? So, yeah, well... I've certainly been a cheerleader for for rewilding and to a lesser extent for for reintroductions and absolutely see the, um, certainly the former as being key and the latter as as being important. I think re rewilding has kind of hit a few stumbling blocks because it's become mm. and it's what someone described in an academic paper as a pancreston. So it's become like all things to all people, and the term is yeah. is abused all the time as well. I've seen you know from like translocation of someone's zoo elephants. To somewhere else that didn't want them branded as rewilding to planting non-native species in your garden recently as rewilding yeah. and, and there's just all these different examples of things we've sort of called rewilding and that some of those are going to upset people right and that creates this sort of gulf of, of expectation which i think also the reintroductions element has as well because mm. you know again social media and, and newspapers are often keen to sort of focus on some of those charismatic apex predators and such like which you know, would be key to, to doing rewilding max as it max as it were, but you know, also bring with their own sort of socio-cultural baggage and, and the need to talk to stakeholders and in this this country where we will only get these species back if stakeholders agree, because if they don't, they will just shoot these animals. You know, there have been groups who have denied there will be problems and have denied the audience for, for people to, to to air their views and such like. So and that's become synonymous with rewilding. When rewilding, what is it, right? It's it's process-based restoration, if you like. The idea yeah. is it's not goal-orientated. And the idea that, you know, it's essentially sort of land abandonment, but adding in some ingredients sometimes, right? And those ingredients might be some big yeah. herbivores or maybe some extra carnivores or, or what have you into that landscape and then let that landscape decide what it's going to be rather than sort of classical conservation has been restoration where we've had a goal in mind. We want species X, Y, and Z to be there. We want the habitat to look like this, etc. And they're complementary approaches and along spectrum. And I think that's how we need to see rewilding, right? Because you know, if we dial the rewilding max, which might be 
you know, we're going to GM some chimeric woolly mammoth or whatever and, and reintroduce that to Hertfordshire, which, again, let's not talk about that because it's just a silly thing to talk about, but push that <laughs> bit back to, to to wolves in Scotland one day or even yeah. links, which is far more likely to happen. You know, all really important things. And, well, the public has also become enthused about these animals will solve problems. And, again, there's lots of evidence that they, they won't necessarily solve these problems. I mean, having links would be fundamental and brilliant to have, because, and we're, we're sort of legally obliged, or at least we're part of the EU, and I hope we'll retain legislation to be putting these animals back. But it's, for instance, not going to solve the deer problem in southern England because it will never cohabit with deer in southern England because, you know, the, yeah. there's lynx as a forest animal. And this, in this country, we've got precious little forests, which is, again, one reason why we need sort of more rewilding, if you like. Mm. But on, on that continuum, back from megafauna in Pleistocene Park or whatever, through what might be possible in the UK... And they die a bit, bit before that. We've got sort of wilder farming, which is rewilding. We're going to try and remove all these sheep, which have never been a native tax into the UK and problematic grazing regimes or what have yeah. you, and have, you know, some hairy odd cattle and, and have farming and a mechanism by which people that want to eat meat can pay a premium tax for a, a product which should be delivering biodiversity, etc. We'll call that rewilding. Some people get a bit upset by that because it's still farming to an extent, but it's still it's process based and you you're creating an analogy of a system which you didn't have before yeah and conservation has changed in a long way that this idea of animals on nature reserves right i mean when i grew up that wasn't a thing you know there were people were still bringing in expensive equipment in from the netherlands to like dig out ditches and such like and the rspb was spending you know their their budget for the air reserves in, in east norfolk when i was a, a phd student in, in uea it was, it was well over 100 grand and a lot of that was spending on these massive machines and bashing the scrub back and everything else. and But now the RSPB are moving towards using big hairy animals and, and, and conic ponies and, and or I can't even remember, some of the, the UK-based native mammal people will be upset mm. about talking about conic ponies because they're not even not even British. We've got a whole suite of, <laughs> of better British horses that could be, we could be doing this. So, Bring back British animals. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, Exmoors can do it or whatever it is. But the point is there are mm. mechanisms by which you can do that and, and that can have some synergy with farming or with shooting as well, right? Because for me, what's yeah. important is land cover. Land cover is what I'm interested in. Land use, I'm less interested in that because in a biodiversity and climate crisis, you know what what the actual use is, what pays the bills there is less important than there being biodiversity on that land. And if, if some people end up shooting some of that wildlife, well, that's not something that I like or like to watch, but I'll tolerate it if that means we get more biodiversity. And that's that's sort of my standpoint relationship with with shooting. So certainly, sort of wilder type activities like that mm. either farming or shooting or whatever it is that's we need to move forward and, and the other portfolio possibilities or are also important you know, if companies want to move in and and do some greenwashing which probably in a lot of cases it, it might be maybe you know we can trust these people but equally to think about the sort of the socio-cultural problems that might be associated with that as well and, and not to ignore local people's views on that too so we need to be very careful about how we sort of interact with this sort of rush on on purchasing of, of upland estates because we certainly don't want all the trees to be sick as spruce and and or to be losing good habitats for instance so again there's, there's lots of caution but you know it's just talk if everyone talks to everyone then we're far more likely to achieve you know sort of, sort of meaningful change and it's not like everywhere has to be rewilded any more than it has to things have to stay the, ch the same at the moment right if if even if we change 10%, that would be incredible. That will save species from extinction, right? It doesn't have to be 100%. It could be 20% wilder farming. It could be 10% rewilding max, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, if we can flip some shooting estates to less intensive management regimes. I mean, and some of them are very good already and, and recognising that. But, you know, social media often doesn't, it doesn't call it that. You know, we get upset when... You know, conservation, I'll be a conservation biologist saying, well, we need to get rid of Munchak, we need to get rid of Munchak. You know, nightingales are going to disappear because there's no herb layer in, in, in southern woodlands. Mm. And there's nuances there as well. You know, Richard Broughton will pull me up on that with some evidence, whereas other folks are quite sure it's an issue. But then if we go and say someone's shooting Munchak, we're suddenly baying for their blood. 
I'm like, well, this is a problem, right? Because we, we want to, we want fewer yeah. of these animals. We, we shouldn't be killing them in a horrendous manner, but it's, you know, removing muntjac from our system is something we need to do. So I think those sort of issues and realising that, you know, species do die in the actual world and we can't avoid that comes back to the blue tits and great tits, right? I mean, do yeah, we, yeah, are, we, are we trying to stop death in the natural world or, or mm. are we trying to look for more biodiverse ecosystems? And, and I think... People get stuck on the death part sometimes. I think we just need to be pragmatic about that. Whilst, you know, saying, right, you can't you can't have a hobby which is poisoning wildlife. You know, we can't be spraying you know, thousands of tons of lead into these ecosystems. That's that's gotta stop, right? But but you can shoot wildlife and do conservation. So I think that we need to be recognised that whilst also recognising all sorts of problems. I mean, ongoing issues with raptor persecution. That's not gone away in, in systems like, you know, grouse shooting, etc. Yeah, yeah. Whilst in the lowlands, it's, it's much less of a problem. I mean, you see it in the news, but it's such a low level. And birds of prey are doing really well in most areas in the lowlands, while whilst they are, well, one species in particular, the hen harry, is... Is doing very badly because it's so itinerant, right? I mean, because of its ecology, it moves around and eventually it's going to hang out several times a year on a moor where the keeper will not hesitate to shoot it. So that's the problem there. And we need to be working to fix that problem. And then that that comes back to the reintroductions angle we wanted to cover yeah. as well because something else has been postulated, for instance, golden eagles, for instance, as a reintroduction possibility. Now, I think yeah, in a way that would be fantastic, you know, to to, to push that process forward. But, but for me as an ecologist, well, I think, well, well, why haven't we got golden eagles? We haven't got golden eagles because people shoot them. If people stop shooting golden eagles, then then we'd have golden eagles, right? And we yeah. stopped shooting buzzards. And, and when I when I grew up, there were no buzzards in Eastern Britain. But I had to drive from my house in South Lincolnshire, my parents' house, to Wales to see buzzards and red kites and ravens. And they all breed now, like within a mile of my parents' house. All those species yeah. have come back. Polecats have come back. You know, otters have come back. Golden eagles would come back as well. They're just different life history. They're, you know, they take longer. Their intrinsic rate of population growth is low, and then they, they suffer more from from being shot because they move around so much. Mm. If we if we solve the shooting problem, we'll get golden eagle back. And I think, in a way, you know, jumping to to, to reintroductions before can we fix the problem? And that also yeah, applies to absolutely. stuff that's also been mooted, like well, Dalmatian pelicans, for instance. I've, I've seen that crop up quite a few times, and. For me, yeah, we probably would work if you if you took a load and dropped them in East Anglia. But wouldn't it be much better if we achieve having a uh, an arc of mega wetlands across Central Europe and and get them back naturally as as a, as a goal mm. rather than and they would come back. We just you build this habitat and these things will come. Except in the case of being an island, you know, lynx are never going to get here on their own. Beavers are never going to get their own. But a lot of these birds will come back, and even inverts and everything else move incredibly yeah, yeah, quickly. Yeah. You look at wasp spider, you know, sort of colonising the entire country in, in a few decades, and all all mm. these species adapt and move. If you build a habitat, a lot of these species will get here. So I don't think we need to be moving them around. We need to be, you know, putting the you know, the horse before the cart, if you like, because they they will arrive. It's like the Woodstock approach: you just build it, they will come. <laughs> like, well, well they is... will, yeah, and, and they have done. Yeah. And, and a lot of them are not even specialists. We, you don't forget about that. It's not like you have to create habitats for polecats or whatever. You just don't need to kill them. And, and that's that's it's ironic. I mean, I often mention this about hen harriers. Maybe get a bit upset about it, but I'm like, hen harriers is such an easy problem to fix in a way, right? You just people just have to do nothing. You need to not shoot hen harriers. Beyond that, there's. <laughs> I mean, it would. They would be fine. That's yeah. all we need to do. Yeah, I know. It's so. If when you just say it out loud, it's like, guys, they'll come back if you stop shooting them. <laughs> but there's all all sorts of other upland species which we have to do all sorts of things to fix. You know, for yeah. wood warblers or wood ants or whatever it is, we have to do this restoration. Mm. I mean, if if the grass more people could live with hen areas, and there's all these talk of you know diversionary feeding or whatever else, hen areas would be absolutely fine. End of story. They're not fine because people are shooting them all the time. And that's the reason they're rare. But they those things look after themselves. Big things, big predators. It's the same in in Amazonia where I work. You know, these big things they occupy all these different habitats. Jaguars occur from Mexico to Argentina. They're not specialists, mm. nor are tapirs. You know, the specialists are the, the willetits or the the, the wing-banded antbirds or, or whatever it yeah. is. These are the things we need to, to fix habitats for. The, the big things look after themselves, and as long as we're not killing them, they generally do all right. And so I think, in a way, that again, we miss we miss that when we, we get obsessed by some of these species, I think. I think a lot of the time, with maybe not so much reintroductions, but certainly rewilding, I think some groups of people maybe 
kind of scared that it, it means like like you said it isn't it's not about the entire of britain for example being 100 percent wild nothing else can happen because i think you know we, we've got to remember we exist we need land is the whole point of this we need the planet as well and i think that's where a lot of people kind of get freaked out when the rewilding especially when it does get used in the wrong way and we and it, it kind of gets taken over because you know, I'm a firm believer of collaboration is the best way forward. Do you think that that needs to happen more with wildlife conservation, especially when we look at rewilding and reintroductions with land use as well? I think so. I think you just need to be be careful about the the language which which is used and ha- and making yeah. sure that stakeholders, if you listen to people and take in their concerns. And I've noticed that even on Twitter, it's become, I think, more nuanced with this, even in the last couple yeah. of weeks. And people are taking on these these ideas of the sort of dispossession of, of Highlanders, for instance, or the need that the, uh, there are human-wildlife conflicts which arise, and, and, and we can't you can't yeah. sweep them under the carpet. You have to think, well, how can we fix them? And there, there are issues yeah. with sort of corporate capture of, of land, and there, there are potential risks involved. And I think as long as we're open about these problems and and talk to people, then they're much, they're much easier to fix. And it just becomes a question of language. And so often you know, people on either side will, will try and preach to the choir and say something bad or whatever. But most of the time, these people sat down in a room, they could quite easily agree on most things. And especially if you sort of take Steve yeah. Carver's idea of this continuum, then it's well we just need as much of as, going to the, as far right would be would be great but as long as we we move in that direction and we're strategic about you know maybe we need to intensify in some areas agricultural production we're going to have to think about what mm. we eat and and our trophic position i mean i'm a vegetarian but you know telling people stop eating meat immediately not helping with this but telling people not well <laughs> well you know don't eat meat you know meat free monday or maybe that becomes meat free monday and tuesday and, and gradual things and treat it as you know high high welfare or high environmental benefit and those sort of messages yeah. are far more likely to take and you could argue well if you have 10 people give up then that's great but if, if a hundred a thousand people change to not eat one day a week those sort of changes will have a far bigger additive impact and they may then change the way they behave afterwards but we can recognize that there is value and there are farmers which really do deliver this and if we don't have these animals running around then we will lose species as well which has happened with land abandonment in in parts of europe which is averted to woodland and we've lost some sort of important farmland uh, well sort of extensive farmland associated species so we want to preserve that habitat heterogeneity and sort of just avoid some of the hegemonic issues which we've got today i mean it's almost like whole regions of Britain have become, this is arable, this is pastoral, yeah, this is grouse, yeah. this is conifers. And we need to sort of wind that back a bit and how can we diversify in these areas? And again, it's just economies of scale and how industries work, right? And how supermarkets work or or how we've sort of created a market for for DGS, right? For city boys to come up. And, and I've seen, you know... Um, people within the shooting community writing about their, their problems with these sort of approaches and, you know, the sort of commercialization in, you know, in danger of killing the sport. So there's plenty of dissenting voices and within forestry as well, and within farming. So we just need to work with, with the people who are sort of the bright spots, if you like, and how can we roll out their successes? And again, them talking to their peers and convincing them that this will work and making sure we can pay for it. Right. We don't want people to embark yeah. on change and then immediately end up out of pocket. That's not, again, that's not socially just either. So we, these things need to need to be made to work. I think so many people just like, I mean, I don't, I don't blame them for it, but just so unaware that they could learn so much from each other. Like there's so much that you could kind of mix in together. Do you know what I mean? Like you said about the different, like, you know, that's that's for arable, that's for hunting, that's for shit. But it's like, it will come together. You can actually help each other out so much and be more productive in a lot of areas if you just chat. Just chat, for God's sake. Yeah. yeah on, on any level. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, li- I follow a lot of different people on Twitter and I, I listen. I don't have to agree yeah. with it, but I don't, equally don't have to wade in and call someone, you know, an or whatever. It's just, you don't, you don't, it just doesn't move forward, <laughs> yeah. right? You, I might, I often challenge yeah. people on, on these, on these views, but in a nice way. And then I'll usually learn mm. something which might be what's the positionality of this, this person here? What are the problems they face in, in doing what they do? And then trying to understand, well, how can, how can we fix those problems such that, you know, we can sort of move together and it's sort of to a more sort of biodiverse upland or lowland landscapes or, or whatever it is. And I think, from listening to you on today's show, I think a lot of people that are going to be listening are going to be kind of going, 
Oh, I'm realising a lot because a lot of the stuff you've said is quite, like you said, it's, it's not the go-to brain thinking. It's, you know, nuance takes a bit of work and takes a bit of challenging. But to, the last question on the show, Alex, is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding a natural world, what bit of advice would you pass on? Spend as much time in it as you can, I guess. Mm. I think that that gives you empathy and encouraging other people as well. I had a, a PhD student that worked with me, uh, Kasia Milakavich, and well, she showed that you don't necessarily have to have a huge amount of connection with nature to be motivated by to conserve stuff, but I think it helps mm. to a to a certain level. Yeah. And to spend time in nature, but also to spend time speaking to people who live in nature, especially if you're sort of physically disconnected from that as well. And mm. just to sort of try and be empathetic with other people, even if you disagree, but to try and understand the position they're coming from. That sort of dialogue is the key to sort of problem solving, I guess. And and I guess I, just, I think there are fewer problems than we make out in many ways. And the bigger problems are sort of governance and, and such like. And I think it almost helps that if we all at each other's throats, then again, we, we don't solve the problems and, and no change happens, which which will suit some people within those camps, but, but not everyone. So I think understanding there is a lot of disquiet within these different camps. And that comes from... The other side that might be listening to this as well, I mean, conservationists uh, yeah. might not agree about everything, but certainly the broader sort of church of people that think they're interested in the environment, activists and such like, have very different views. And I disagree with a lot of things that are said, for instance, and, and have quite strong evidence-based rationales to be disagreeing with that. So to recognising that we're not, again, not everyone has the same set of pre- preconceived notions about what we should be doing uh, and why necessarily is also important. Well, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's it's to get this chance to talk to you and and, and have a discussion about nuance is um bloody gets the mind going, I think. <laughs> gets people thinking and that's the right thing to do. But thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Indeed. Well thank you. It was great to chat. Thanks again for listening, Nature Nerds. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Alex is working on, then you can do so on social media. His tags are in the write-up of this episode. And you can also get in touch with me at Into the World Pod at gmail.com or on social media at Into the World Pod on Twitter and Into the World Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however, running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks, and you can do so by buying me a coffee, our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.